The rest of you can turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're looking at body life once again. What does it mean to be part of the body of Christ and how does the body work together and work in love? Um, I was talking to uh, someone uh, this week, a friend, and he was, we were talking about the sermon last week about kind of that overflowing concept, that overflowing with grace. The, the Swedish word is overfluting, right? That overfluting of, of grace in our lives, that it flows out of us. And he was saying, why, why does it sometimes that Christians struggle with this? Why, why do they not overflow like they should? How, how, how can they really experience grace in order to let them overflow? Because it, if, if this concept is correct, which I believe that it is, is that if you don't experience grace, it's hard to overflow with it. But what's the problem? Why can't we experience grace sometimes? Well, you have to look at the definition a little bit first. Like, how would you define grace? You know, a great kind of acronym to define grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. So the idea of, of God, God has given us so much because of Christ and that, that realizing it's Christ paid the price to give us all the riches that God has to give us. But practically speaking, in that sense, it's this idea of unconditional love, unconditional acceptance, even though we have faced eternal judgment for our rejection of God's love, right? Or rejection of God's rule. We, we say we don't... Practically speaking, what has happened to each one of us is we have wanted not God to rule over us, but for us to rule over ourselves, right? And the, the, the reality of that brings judgment upon us because we never want to have God rule over us. Therefore, eternal judgment is the fate that we have. But instead of God pouring that out on us, instead, he gave us Christ, right? He sent Christ to be the, the satisfaction of God's wrath. This is, this is the, the story of the Bible. And yet at the same time, we, we intellectually understand it, say, okay, that's the story, great. But we don't experience grace. Jesus tells the parable of the sower, right? He said, well, the sower went out to sow seed, and he sowed seed, and it fell on uh, you know, the, the path, and then it fell on rocky ground, and it fell on weedy ground, and then some ground produced fruit, 30-fold, 100-fold. And the disciples are like, what does that mean? And he says, well, the, the word, this, the seed is the word, and it goes out, and it's, it's, it falls on people's hearts in that sense. And some people's hearts are hard. They, they don't really, the devil just steals that, that word from their lives, and some people's hearts are caught up in the, the cares and the, the, the tribulations, the trials that they face in the world, and they don't experience grace either in that sense. They don't respond to the word. Some people are caught up with the pleasures of the world. They think, well, I just want this. I don't want God. I want this. And so they, again, don't produce fruit. And, and the, the main point of the story is, where is your heart at? Because as, the, the, as you listen to the word, as you understand it and grasp it, then it produces fruit in your life. And the picture, the biblical picture that Jesus is sharing here is that we experience grace when we understand the word 
believe in it and apply it to our lives. The question is, is why don't we do that? And in 1 Corinthians 2, he's talking about the idea of the Spirit bringing us the Word, revealing the Word to us in order that we can experience grace. So the big idea this morning is as we follow the Spirit, is we're saying the Spirit needs to impart to us to help us experience grace in a spiritual way. And the big idea is that we trust in the Spirit's revelation of the Word in order to experience grace. Like, we have to trust that and let that work in our lives. And so let's just, if you will, follow along in 1 Corinthians 2, as I read 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16, and then we'll kind of unpack it here together. Verse 6 says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for your glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches even the depths of God, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Right? Notice that phrase there, that we might understand the, the, the things freely given to us by God. That's grace, right? The things that are freely given to us. How do we how do we experience grace? By the Spirit revealing it to us. Verse 13, And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Here's the conundrum. He's like, how do we understand the mind of God? But we've been given the Spirit, and the Spirit helps us to have the mind of Christ. So, so I just want to kind of unpack that a little and, in a sense, work backwards to the passage by starting with this idea of the mind of Christ. So point number one, if you're taking notes on the back of the bulletin or wherever, is that the Spirit imparts to us the mind of Christ through his revelation of God in the Word. The Spirit imparts to us the mind of Christ. So the goal of God's revelation in his Word, the goal of this is not just that that you would say, okay, now I know who God is, but that we would have an understanding of how God thinks and what God desires, what he loves. And, and it's called here the mind of Christ. We say, well, what is the mind of Christ? Because Paul doesn't go into the mind of Christ. And just a couple of things to think about here, about 1 Corinthians in general. In 1 Corinthians in general, what you see is, you see the the return of Christ as a motivational through the whole, the whole of 1 first, first Corinthians, the return of Christ, the day of the Lord, the, the judgment that is coming even, even to Christians that were accountable to God for what we do, 
is, is, is a motivation for us. But the thing that guides us, that, that helps us through, is the revelation of the Spirit in the Word of God. And as we, as we look at that, as we consider that, what, what you see is this mind of Christ being developed. And it, it's, we, so we go to other passages of Scripture that maybe help us fully understand it. So we go back to the Gospel of John, which is a great place to help us understand because it's the first place that the Holy Spirit is, is referenced in depth. And in John 15, verse 26, it says, But when the Helper comes, that is, the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So again, this, again just like what, what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 2, John here, the Apostle John is saying, Look, when J- Jesus is saying, when the Holy Spirit comes, that, this, that Jesus is going to send from the Father, this, the Holy Spirit is going to bear witness about Christ. The main purpose the Holy Spirit came, that he came into the world to do was to bear witness about Jesus, to glorify Jesus, to say this is who Jesus is. Yes, he came in, the, in, in flesh just like everyone else. Yes, he died on a cross, but he is truly God in the flesh. And that's the main purpose that the Holy Spirit is, is with us to accomplish. So he's testifying to who Christ is. That's why we have, ultimately, the Bible is because, again, the Spirit is helping us to understand who Christ is and how to believe in him and follow him. So earlier in John 15, Jesus says this, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Here's an example of the mind of Christ. Jesus knew the Father loved him. Even when the Pharisees are like, you're of Beelzebub, you're of the devil. He's like, no, I know the Father loves me. Even when the Sadducees were trying to trick him up, I know the Father loves me. Even, even, when, even when he's going to the cross, he's on the cross, what is he doing? He's saying, Father, I know you love me. You'll still listen to me even though I'm on the cross bearing the weight of the sins of the world. He knew his Father loved him regardless. He goes on to say, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, Right? Here's this dynamic that Jesus has, the mind that Jesus has. If I know the Father loves me, I will keep his commandments and I'll abide in his love. This is the the mind of Christ in that sense. And and so we have this mind that that is is supposed to guide and direct us in in a sense, just as it guided and directed Christ. Regardless of what he faced, Regardless of what he went through, he knew the Father loved him. Now, is that in other pages of Scripture where we should know the same thing about us? The, the Holy Spirit wants us to know the same thing, right? Romans 8 is a clear passage, right? For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor anything things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Holy Spirit is is giving us the word so we know God loves us. Even when 
human beings want to turn around and say, God doesn't love you because you don't do X or you don't do Y. And so the, the Spirit is, is here to, to, to give us the mind of Christ so that we can, again, overflow. If we know God loves us, we can turn around and obey him and keep his commandments and love others, even in spite of the things they do against us. So the Spirit, so it's just pointing out here it, through 1 Corinthians 2 and other passages, that the Spirit inspired the Word. The word that, that we use here in Scripture is, for inspiration is the idea of God breathed, okay? He inspired it. He breathed it out. 2 Timothy 3.16 makes it explicit. It says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness, says this is something that God is, has done. Second Peter gives us a little more insight into the process. In verse 21 it says, For no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when, it's, when we say that the, God breathed out Scripture, what we're saying is not that, that some people heard a voice you know, and wrote it down. It's that God moved in people to write down things that were by his direction, by his control, so that what we have is ultimately from God for us. It's, it's breathed out. It's, it's, in that sense, true and, and righteous because it's from God. God superintends the entire process he in, and superintends the, the, the human being's mind that he used, the, the words that, that they chose, and then superintends just helping people to understand that it is from God. The Holy Spirit does all of that. Now, obviously over the years, people have questioned this. You know, there's a certain... Um, kind of recreation of history, right? Like a lot of times when we don't know history too well, we kind of assume certain things and, and assume certain things happened. And so one of the assumptions is, especially about the Old Testament and, and everything that went with it, that, that the, the religious authorities made up this religion, the Jewish religion, to keep their power. You know, they, they, the priests, they had to keep their power, right? And so they made all of this stuff up in order to do this. And, and it, it seems plausible, uh, even as, as early as the 1940s, that this was true, that, that in a sense, over time, the Jewish religion was just made up over time as the priests were like, well, we've got to keep our power and keep people following us, and so we're going to lay down rules, and we're going to say this is from God, and, it's, it's, and it just it gradually developed over years to become what it is. But it wasn't that way in the beginning, and one of the reasons for that was because the earliest Hebrew texts we had of the Old Testament were around 1000 AD. They, were, they weren't that old in that sense. If, if the Jews claimed to be you know, from Abraham and then David, that was like 1000 BC. And so they were claiming, hey, hey, look, you know, they just, they just made this up over time. They just put these things in, but we have no proof. Well... In 1947, right before the Israeli War for Independence, they found 
in Qumran, in some caves, scrolls and fragments of scrolls that, they, that um, over time came to the right authorities and they got dated and they got studied and they realized that they were from basically around the time of Christ, even before the time of Christ, about 100 B.C., roughly. So they were a thousand years earlier than the earliest manuscripts that we had. And they were like, okay, so let's, let's compare. <laughs> We have a manuscript from 1000 AD and we have one from 100 BC. We're going to find accretions and additions and things that weren't in this text that weren't going to be in this text from 1000 years earlier. And what they found was that there were basically no additions. It was basically the same. They said, I have a quote here from Gleason Archer in the Survey of Old Testament Introduction. It says, Even though the two copies of Isaiah discovered in Qumran Cave near the Dead Sea in 1947 were a thousand years earlier than the oldest dated manuscripts previously known, they proved to be word-for-word -word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text. The 5% of variation consisted chiefly of obvious slips of the pen and variation in spellings. So a thousand years earlier, and 95% of the text is, is identical. Let me just give you one passage to help you understand the depth of this, of how this is true. So Isaiah 53 is, uh, is a common passage we go to that, that predicts the, the sufferings of the Messiah and his ultimate vindication. In Isaiah 53, there are 160 words and in Hebrew, words are usually made up of three or four letters. They're not like English words where you could have, you know, you know ten, ten letters long. They're three or four. That's it. Um, and, and so in, in those 160 words in Isaiah 53, there are 17 letters that are questioned. That is, there's a difference in, 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 in between Isaiah 53 and a thousand years ago and a thousand years before, 17 letters different. Of those, most of those are obvious mis, just misspellings, right? The, the, you know, have you ever tried to copy somebody, right? And you, you're just copying along and you just misspell the word because you're focused on letters and not on words. But there are two that are kind of you know, maybe bigger difference. The first one is Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he was, as one from whom, men whom, from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The variation was that, that in that last phrase there, he was despised. The, the, the letter that was different added or changed it slightly so that it becomes from he was despised to we despised him. Is there any difference in meaning from as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we deceived him not? And as one from, from whom men hide their faces, he was, uh, we despised him and we deceived him not? Is, is there any difference in meaning? Absolutely not, right? It's just the same. It's just a, a different, a slight variation in, in what's What's emphasized? The other one is in Isaiah 53, 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. 
Going back to the beginning here, the difference here is in the first phrase. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see. Earlier, it was out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see light and be satisfied. Again, no real difference in the, in the meaning of the text at all. And so this theory that, hey, the, the, the priests kept adding to Scripture to, to preserve their power, to keep what they had, so that, so that uh, th- this is how all religions develop, is by the keeping of power, by adding things in, just got totally demolished. It was totally demolished. The, the idea that, that, that this is just a kind of a different compete. There was even an idea that, okay, well, you had the, the Jewish version of the Old Testament and the Christian version of the Old Testament, and maybe the, the, they had a Syriac version of the Old Testament. But again, when, when they got these scrolls, they realized um, like there were some... There were some variations that followed the Greek text more than, the, than the, what they call the Masoretic or the Hebrew text. Like there was no pattern of one school controlling the, the text and its transmission. And what it meant overall was, again, this wasn't about power. They weren't controlling the text of Scripture in order to control people's beliefs. That wasn't happening. They were simply trying to preserve Scripture and pass it down and let Scripture be the authority. <laughs> and that became clear. Just another kind of scientific approach, if you will, to this. Here's, here's the number of manuscripts of ancient works. So you have different ancient works, like you have Euripides, you have Homer here, you have I know Pliny the Elder, I mean, this is getting into history here a little bit. But, if you, but so Homer, Homer's Iliad has 1,900 different manuscripts that, that, uh, that exist showing Homer's Iliad, right? Notice the, the Greek New Testament, just the Greek versions of it are over 5,000, okay? And if you include in all the other translations, you get over 23,000. Again, if, if this is about trying to preserve power, is this, if this is about trying to control people's beliefs, then this is not happening. Like, it just shows us that we have the evidence to, even though we can't say, okay, here's the original manuscript that John wrote, you know, and it was kept preserved for us to this day. What we do have is we have all of the evidence to say, okay, well, we have a few variations here, a few misspellings, but I think overall, no one's trying to hide the text from us. No one's trying to take away the text from us, nor really to add to the text. They're, they're just, they're trying to preserve it as best they can, and our job is to somewhat sift through history and find what it is, but it's not like someone was controlling that process and hiding it from us. Again, because... What, what's there is what God has promised to us, his word. Another kind of way of looking at this too is the years between dates written and earliest, if you can't read it, it says the years between date written and earliest fragment or manuscript. So the date between a fragment, fragments is in blue. So like for instance here, there's no complete manuscript of Caesar's Gallic Wars. But then you have the red are complete manuscripts and the, and the blue are fragments. 
And again, here's the New Testament complete manuscript between when we thought it was written and when we have a manuscript of it, 200 years. But how many years between a fragment? 20. So, so we have a, fragments of manuscripts, right? They're paper, they fall apart. You know, they're leather, they fall apart. But it's only th- that kind of difference as opposed to some of the other texts that are here where you have, you know, over 1,600 years between, between things. And what you see there, again, is it's, it's not so much that, okay, look, everything, everything's been preserved and we know exactly what the words are, but what we have is we, we can see that it, it wasn't corrupted, it wasn't controlled, it was passed down with the goal of helping people to know what God's Word says and what it is. The people, there's another excuse that comes into play sometimes in this. They just say, well, the people of, you know, kind of pre-modern times, which again, is kind of biased, but it's what people do sometimes. The people of pre-modern times were too incredulous. So it's, it's not so much that the, the, the authorities, the priests or whatever, were controlling the power. It's just that the common people, they just believed anything that anyone said. There's an author out there that talks about the apocalyptic Jesus, in a sense. Just that Jesus was more of a, uh, just an apocalyptic preacher, like the end of the world is at hand, right? Kind of that idea. So, and uh, so Jesus was like that, and then everybody else kind of added to his message of, of, uh, and, and filled out his beliefs. And, and so one classic passage with this is Matthew 24, right? Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about the end. And he says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And what people do sometimes is they make Jesus too simple. They think we can figure everything out. They're too easily fooled, but we aren't going to be. But the problem is, is that people like this is they take one idea out of one passage of scripture and they they ignore all the rest of the evidence. Because even 20 verses earlier, Matthew 24, 14, it says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus is saying this is going to go out through the entire world first before the end comes. So he can't mean, okay, this is going to end in 30 years, and the world's going to end in 30 years. That's not what he's saying. But they twist it to mean that. Because they think, oh, the people back then were just too incredulous. Another verse that clearly says that he's not doing that is this, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Again, Jesus is saying, you're not going to know when this, hap- when this is going to happen. That does not go along with <laughs> twisting one verse to mean something else. But, but this is what people do with scripture. In fact, Peter predicted this in 2 Peter. He says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom giving him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Here, Paul, Peter is saying, Paul's writing a scripture, right? And he's saying they twist Paul's writing just like they do the rest. 
Is that, that when you come at Scripture and you're trying to prove your point rather than let the, 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 the Scripture tell you what it's saying, then you twist it to make it what you want it to be. And that's what happens, in, unfortunately, at times. I ran into another example of this. Someone was talking to me about someone they were uh, working in discipleship with, and they were saying, well, this guy is struggling with Scripture because he thinks that the idea that the, the Bible's teaching that the Jews rule the world and that, like, that it's all about the Jews, and like, why would we as Gentiles ever kind of accept that? And he's being deceived by that argument. Never mind the scriptures that say that Jesus, when he was confronting his own people, especially the ruler of his own people in John, says, You're of, you are of your father the devil. Like, like, if Jesus is all about just making the Jews in charge, then why would he call them of the devil, right? And it also ignores Revelation, right? Where it says that people from every tribe and tongue and nation are going to be gathered together, and they're going to rule with Jesus. This isn't just about the Jews, and, and so, again, people twist Scripture to say what they want it to say and then reject it, even though the Spirit has inspired it. And it's clear that He has preserved it so that we can be, with confidence say we have God's Word. In fact, the classic passage, if you ever want to read it, is uh, in the introduction to the King James Bible, the original version, 1611, Right? In, in 1611, the King James, um, King James authorized these translators to translate the Bible, and they knew they were doing something that not everybody would appreciate. You know, one, not everybody appreciated King James, <laughs> right? And so, but they, they, they made this point. They're talking about the translation and the work they did, and then they said this. If, if anyone approaches Scripture seriously and is trying to translate it with with, with understanding the meaning of the text, it should be authoritative. You should treat it with authority. Why? Because you're trying to understand God's word. Which brings me to my third point. The word is authoritative for the church. The word is authoritative for the church. This is, and why does that matter? Well, first of all, why is it authoritative? One, we say the Holy Spirit inspired it, but also we, we, We've had this path, right, where people have recognized the authority of Scripture. We talk about this in what's called the canonicity of Scripture. That is, what is the canon of Scripture? Because even today, like, some of you appreciate different authors. Some of you might appreciate John MacArthur, for instance, or you might appreciate John Piper, or you might appreciate other men who write great, great things, and you're like, man, this is so great. But the question is, is it Scripture? right? Is it scripture? Does it have that level of authority? And they had that problem even back 200 years after Christ died, right? And they're trying to figure out, okay, what's, what's authoritative and what's not? They had good books that they would listen to and read and consult, but they differentiated between good books that they appreciated and scripture as authoritative, and so they came together, and it wasn't a matter of, hey, we're going to decide for everyone else. It was churches from all over the Roman Empire coming together saying, these are the books that we think are authoritative, that, that we're willing to submit to because we think they're from God. And, and, and they, 
gathered together, and it took some time because, one, books like Revelation were written later, and they hadn't been distributed as much, and so you had, so you had to go through a certain process of listening and considering and carefully considering, is this authoritative? But they came to agreement. And even today, we, in a sense, have the same same thing that we have to wrestle with and do. Like, is, does this have authority for me? But the question maybe to ask yourself first is, why is this important? Why is it important that we consider what books have authority over us? Well, without authority, you don't know God loves you. You get that, right? Like, the books that you say are authoritative tell you something that you have to believe even if you don't feel like it. Just like Jed referenced this morning, right? We're called to worship. Sometimes we don't feel like it. Sometimes it doesn't feel ideal. Sometimes it doesn't feel great. But there's an authority over us that we, are, we listen to. Well, what if you think to yourself, God doesn't love me? Or someone tells you, God doesn't love you if you don't do X. Well, how do you know? What's the authority to tell you what to really think and believe? If you don't have authority, you're cast out on the winds. You're like a, a wave tossed to and fro on the sea, and you can go anywhere, and you can believe anything. You don't know the mind of Christ. You, you really can't know God. Without authority, God can't say anything to you that you would disagree with, that you have to wrestle with and say, well, I don't like this. And you're like, well, this is, this is authoritative. This is from God. See, most of us, the, the problem is, is that we have a ton of experiences, but how do we interpret those experiences? The, the authorities we go to help us to interpret what we believe, right? Like, if you, if you say, well, I've got a temperature of 102, and I've got, uh, you know, my, I'm feeling flushed, and I'm feeling, where do you go? Well, you, you typically go to a doctor who's got some authority to be like, okay, here's what you have. Here's what you need to do about it, right? And even though you might think to yourself, well, I know better, <laughs> And some of you do think that, right? <laughs> I know better than a doctor what to do. Who's the authority? That really comes down to, is the doctor the authority? Is, are you the authority? Is, uh, is so, some, something you read on the internet the authority? Right? It comes down to that's whatever the authority is tells you that's the one you'll submit to, that's the one you'll follow. The point here is, and I'll just go back to Isaiah 53, Right? Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. How do you know you've received grace? How do you know? How do you know that you've received grace? Unconditional love, unconditional forgiveness, unconditional acceptance into the family of God. How do you know that? Only if you submit to Scripture. It's the only way you know it. You know, I, I struggle with this myself. When I was at, in high school, I, I struggled with various types of sins. I was pretty selfish. 
at times. Definitely disobeyed my parents at times. Struggled with sexual sin at times. I, how do I know that God loves me? I, I grew up in a missionary's home. I've got all these advantages. I can't, I can't get myself to be right. Man, if, if God really loves me, then I should be able to turn myself around. That's what I thought. Sometimes I would go and say, well, I don't know that I'm saved. Well, then, how do I know I'm saved? Well, I would focus on the words that I would say. Like, well, did I say the right words? I don't know. Maybe I'll say them again so I can know that I'm saved. But Scripture doesn't use either of those tests. (laughs) It says, do you believe? (laughs) Do you trust? Not in what you can say, like it's a formula. Like if you say the right formula, then you're saved. Or, hey, if you can turn yourself around, you claim to be a Christian, and then God kind of helps you, but you turn yourself around, then you're saved. No, Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. End of sentence, period, right? God saves you. That's what this verse says too. It's not that the righteous one will give himself and then he'll help many to be made righteous. It says he makes them righteous. And you don't have grace if you don't believe Scripture, If there's not authority in your life to say, I don't know what I think, I don't know what I believe, what am I going to believe? Okay, you got to go to Scripture. Now, I get it. We still argue over what it says sometimes. We still struggle with what to believe sometimes. But you have to have some authority to go back to to say, okay, where are we going to go to find the answer? And it can't be our opinion, it can't be tradition. It can't be the church. This is where it's at. So the question for you today is, who has authority in your life? Who do you go back to ultimately? You might say, well, I check out YouTube quite often. Okay. They don't really know who you are, but they're willing to put out stuff there. Maybe you'd say, my parents, my parents know who I am, but sometimes your parents are wrong. Sometimes they have their own hang-ups. And you say, well, the church, the, your pastor, you're, no, I'm, I'm a human being, I make mistakes. This, this has to be your authority. And when you hear things, or you question, or you think about yourself and your situation, Knowing the word. I mean, that's the point of the parable of the sower, right? Jesus doesn't say, man, if they went to church, you know, then they'd be fruitful. Or, man, if they would just get on YouTube and and find something to listen to, then they'd be fruitful. No, it says they heard the word, they listened to the word, they accepted the word, and they were fruitful. And the only way that works It's if you realize God loves you through the word. Because this is the only place that you'll find unconditionally it's saying God loves you. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's only found here. I get some people weaponize the word. They turn the word to their own profit. But that's not what the word is for. I also think sometimes we rely on different things like dreams or th- things like that. And, and ultimately, those, even though they might sound scriptural, if you're not pointing people back to the word, then you're not giving them a sound basis for authority themselves. I've even had dreams where I felt like, well, God was trying to tell me something. But if I don't go here, I have no basis. I have no things that I can trust in. Peter puts it this way. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's saying, hey, he's talking about the transformation. He said, we had an experience. We saw Jesus glorified. It says, for when we, he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice born to him by the majestic glory said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. He's saying, we had an experience, we saw Jesus, but we didn't know what it meant until God said to us, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You could have lots of experiences. They can be bad, they can be good. But unless you govern that authority by God's word, what he reveals to us, you don't know. And that Paul goes, Peter goes on to say that. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He's saying, until Christ returns and we see him face to face and we have that experience, this is what we have, the prophetic word more fully confirmed, a, a light shining in the darkness, something that we can trust in. Something that we can follow. And that's where he adds, which we already looked at, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own private interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And Peter is saying the same thing in 1 Corinthians 2. None of the rulers of this age understood this. They thought they had their authority on their own. But if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who loved him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. You know what? You want to know what God has prepared for you? You know what God thinks of you? What God has planned for you? You go here. You go here. And it's such a blessed place to go. Ephesians 1, right? He says, hey, you're, you're chosen. You're adopted. You're redeemed. You're forgiven. This is who you are in Christ, if you've trusted in Christ. How do you, I know God loves me? John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. How, how do I know that he cares about me? Romans 8, the, the, the son sits at the right, father's right hand praying for you. How do I know he'll never leave me or forsake me? Because he's given you the Spirit along with the Word. Do you want to experience grace? Then be in the Word. Do you want to know God loves you? Be in the Word. 
You will not experience that unless you are in the word. If you're listening and considering and, and applying the word. So my encouragement to you is to not just know the word, but meditate on the word. Be in the word. Yeah, you can have doubts. God's not afraid of doubts. Yeah, you can have failures. God's not afraid of failures. He's given us his word so that we can know this is what he wants from us, but most of all, so that we can know that he loves us. It's unconditional, unmerited, favoring kindness, God's riches at Christ's expense, and we can know it through the word. Will you be in the word this week? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for how it challenges our thoughts. Doesn't leave us alone and saying, yeah, whatever you think's fine. But it says, you might think God doesn't love you, but he does. You might think you failed, but God hasn't given up on you. You might think you don't have all the answers, and you don't, but you can rest in God's loving hand over your life. Lord, may we experience grace by being in the word, by letting its thoughts and its attitudes and its truth impact the way we think, what we feel, the way we live, so that we can overflow with the grace that you've given us. In your son's name we pray, amen.